Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Welcome to Garden Church Podcast. We are in a series called Courageous Orthodoxy, Convictions for Resilient Faith. And for us at this time, we are looking at the foundations of Christian belief. We are trying to encourage you as followers of Jesus to live out of a robust theology. We're hoping that you would be encouraged by this and that you will ground your faith in the Word of God and you will live a vibrant life in the way of Jesus. Hope this empowers you and encourages you in your faith. Hey, I'm Darren. I wasn't here last week. I got to go to the Grand Prix for the first time. That was pretty awesome. So I've I been in Long Beach for 15 years, and Alex's grandpa goes every year, and she knows one of the, he knows one of the race car drivers. So I got to be at the pit in the Grand Prix, and our guy was sixth the whole time. And in the last lap, no joke, suspension went out, and he got 22nd. How heartbreaking is that? Ah. All right, we're in a series, if you're new, a lot of new people in our community from Easter, um, called uh, Courageous Orthodoxy, and we're talking about the most important things to the Garden Church. We just moved to this new location. We've been in Long Beach for 14 years, and in February, we moved here. We started a series to kind of kind of let you, let everyone know the things that are most important to us. So we talked about scripture and the gospel and the ministry of Jesus. We talked about the cross, the resurrection, and last week, Bill... I heard from way too many of you how great last week was. Um, uh, but yes, Bill preached a phenomenal sermon on the church. Um, the funny thing is, is he was supposed to preach on the discipleship. So I was supposed to preach this week on the church. So I had to rewrite my sermon and do a different one. And so God bless Bill for his 40-something years of research and preparation for that sermon. And now you get a, a very common um, concept that we're going to talk about for those of us that grew up in the church. But I want to reframe this important method. It's the most important method or strategy, you could say, that was implemented in Jesus's life to accomplish his mission. I think about this all the time. Three and a half years of ministry, that's all Jesus had. And if you follow him along... In the Gospels, his strategy wasn't that great from our human or Western standards, right? Like three and a half years, maybe 100 followers in the upper room, right? 120 followers in the upper room, like three and a half years, we could do better than that. Jesus, come on. 
But there's something about his method that I think we need to really focus on. And so this is, we're going to talk about discipleship today. So if you have a Bible, let's go. We're going to read a bunch of passages of scripture. And uh, I would love for you to pull out your Bible. And whoever has the biggest Bible gets a free coffee outside in the breezeway. I'm just kidding. There's no competition. Just kidding. It's all competition. Um, as you heard on Easter Sunday, even the resurrection, who got to the tomb first was a competition. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. I want to actually start, before we get to Jesus, I want to reflect on Paul. I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just look at this quick verse. I'm going to bounce around. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul was an apostle uh, to Jesus. He came to faith as he was persecuting the Christians. And he writes to this church. Now, what's interesting is we don't have time to go into this. But he writes to a church in Corinth. And Corinth has so many issues. It's unbelievable. If you read 1 Corinthians, you're going to see this church. Everyone's like, let's be a biblical church. I don't want to be that biblical church, Okay. Because there's some real sin issues. There's, comp there's all sorts of things they're missing the point on. I mean, things we can't relate to, like uh, com competing over what pastor they followed. You know, like this one is a better teacher than this one. I'm this guy's. I love this podcast. That We don't really resonate with some of the, They have all of those issues. But he says to them, listen, this is so interesting. He says to them, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. All right, now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So that was 11. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I want you to just see this. Now, Paul, again, is dealing with all sorts of issues in the church. There, there's, I mean, we're talking about incest and all these things that you're like, what, is this in the New Testament? Yes. And he's, he's correcting the church. He's given them this, this content and he's, he's writing this, this, this theology to them. He's helping them understand what it means to be followers of Jesus today. He has this line. I'm actually, I didn't prepare this, but in, if you look at verse 15, he says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, or you could translate that to be tutors or teachers, even if he could say today, even if you've listened to 10,000 podcasts of other pastors, that's literally what he's saying. Um, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Something about the apostolic nature of Paul planting in Corinth made him a father to this new community. Other people will come in and teach. They'll, they'll, they'll water what was sown. But he's, he's, an, he's a father to this group of, of people, to the local church. The role that he played as an apostle, was he's, he's referring to as a father. And listen to what he says. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me, to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Okay. Paul, this apostle who's probably one of the smartest men to ever live in history, changed the world that we know because of his few letters written to various churches throughout the Roman Empire. When he's instructing the local church, he says, follow me. Follow my example. Imitate me. And not only that, he's like, you know what? I'm going to send a disciple of mine, Timothy, who's a young apostle in training, and he's going to remind you of the conference speaking I've done. He's going to remind you of the books I've written with the 17 practices to follow Jesus. That's not what he says. He will remind you of my way of life. And my way of life is what I teach Everywhere I go. Now, can we pause for a second and imagine what it would look like today in the Western church if pastors simply said, imitate me? I wrote this sermon three times this week, and I finished it at 640 this morning. I rewrote it. It's full of great stuff. And I, my, my team, I don't want to blame them, but they were making fun of me because I use pages, right? Not Word doc. And I started, using pay, I started using Word doc and I love it. It's amazing. I love it. 
But then I closed my computer and opened my iPad. I haven't touched my iPad since Monday, okay? Because I had my computer when I was away. And it, it was open to that document I started on Monday and it synced it to the original document. So all of the edits that I had on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning at 634, gone. And I laughed and I text Alex, she was in the other room and she was like, I wonder what Jesus is trying to do. Ha, ah, have sympathy. I wonder what it would look like if those of us that lead churches simply said, my life will be a path to follow. You see, this was the strategy of Jesus. Look at Mark chapter three. Let's just dive into some of this. I want to reframe what we're doing. Paul's, Paul was a rabbi who made disciples. Paul was a rabbi who made disciples and he followed the Jesus way We'll talk about that. Jesus chapter three, verse 13. This is gonna be familiar for a lot of us that's been at the garden for a while. And if you grew up in the church, but don't worry, I'm gonna confront some of those things. Uh, Verse 13 of chapter three. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Just preach on that. And they came to him. Listen to what it says. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So this is the call of the disciples. And then it lists the 12 disciples. Notice what it says. Jesus goes to pray in the mountainside, discerns from the Father who's going to be his 12 disciples. This will be the most important thing for the next three and a half years because it's this, these, these men and women, because there will be other women, but the 12, these men, these 12 disciples, he will hand over his mission to transform the cosmos to them. So it's really important he spends one night praying. Chooses 12, but notice what he does. He calls them to drive out demons, to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom. So so this is Mark's shorthand to do what Jesus did, right? So Mark, if you were in Matthew's gospel, it would say to preach the, the kingdom, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. In Luke's gospel, to preach the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons. Mark just likes to summarize it. It's an action film. Preach and drive out demons, But first, be with him. Jesus is a rabbi, and he knows that the way to learn is not through content. The way to learn is not through practices. It's something else. Matthew chapter 28. How are we doing this morning? Are we awake? We good? Verse uh, 18, or let's look in verse 18. This is the very last word in Matthew's gospel from Rabbi Jesus, resurrected from the dead. And uh, the last word of any rabbi to a disciple is the most important word here. It says, Matthew 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, plant big churches. Start podcasts. Do what your heart desires. Go and live a comfortable life safe in that neighborhood with a white picket fence and buy a second home and enjoy it because you're practicing stewardship. Oh, Pastor Darren is on fire right now. Please don't say any more. No, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, immersing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the Trinitarian reality teaching them to obey some of the things I taught you. Everything I have taught you, everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So all, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you said yes to Jesus, there is a commission that you are, um, that you are commissioned into, and that is to make other disciples, to immerse the world in the Trinitarian reality that's all around us the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then to live in a way that teaches people to obey all of the commands of Jesus, knowing that Jesus is with you. This is not a special calling. This is for everyone that has at some point said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So Jesus, his strategy was in his discipleship. 
Now, before we continue, let me just reframe some of these things because some of you haven't heard this before, and I don't want to assume you've heard. This is for us a redefinition of terms, courageous orthodoxy. When we talk about discipleship, I want you to know what we are talking about at Garden Church. So first of all, number one assumption that I carry is Jesus was a rabbi. Maybe that's news to you. He was called the son of God. He was called the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited king of Israel. But in the 90 times people talk to Jesus in the gospel, over 60 of those use the word rabbi. And the Hebrew word for rabbi is simply teacher. So Jesus was a rabbi. Second, Jesus made disciples. This is an assumption that I carry. The word disciple is translated not to, uh, to like someone that goes to a class, but more appropriately so, an apprentice. So Jesus made apprentices of the kingdom. Now, discipleship in the first century wasn't invented by Jesus. Jesus did not invent this form of education. It was, a, 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 it was a Jewish form of education, but it was also used by the Greeks. We have history of rabbis that, that lived before the time of Jesus having various numbers of disciples. Hillel had 70, Akiva had five, but they all had thousands of followers, but only a few disciples were called. Discipleship in Jesus' context in the first century, was the highest form of education. Now, stay with me. We've heard this here before, but I'm just going to give you uh, uh, some, some history. There were three levels of education. Number one, the house of book. It was basically like grade school. Every Jewish boy and girl would be educated in the Old Testament, mainly the first five books, in the house of book. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then by the age of 11 or 12, most people... Most of the kids in the Jewish context would go from the house of book to learn the family trade. If you were female, you would go and learn what it means to be a woman in Jewish society. If you were male, you would probably take on the family business. So if your parents were fishermen, you would become fishermen. That's kind of what was happening that was expected for most of the people in the Jewish context. If you were smart enough, you would go to the next level of education. The second level was the house of learning, ages 12 to 14. From there, you would learn the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. You would begin to memorize the entire Old Testament, right? So you would have it memorized. And then after that age, 12, 13, 14, you would go back home and learn the family trade. You go back into uh, Jewish society. If you were the best, the elite, the smartest of the bunch, you would go to a rabbi and you go to the next level of discipleship. You would petition to them that you were the smartest and they would grade you. They would, they would grill you on your Old Testament study. They would grill you on the oral traditions of the rabbinic tradition. And then if you had what it took, they would say, follow me. And then you would go and you would leave your family and you would become a disciple to the rabbi. And there's this famous um, quote that was said in the first century, be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea would be that you would follow this person around in the dust that he would kicked up or you would be covered in. There's stories of Rabbi Akiva when he was a, a, a disciple to his rabbi, he would go into the latrine, he would go into the restroom because he didn't want to miss what his rabbi was doing. This is how they thought. They, uh, this is no joke. This is historical ancient text that talks about this in Akiva's uh, uh, own, own writings because the, for them, the Torah was living in their rabbi. A rabbi would speak and teach and it would be their yoke. That's the first century phrase for the way of teaching and life of a rabbi. So when Jesus says, my yoke, take my yoke, he's referring to his interpretation of the Old Testament and his teachings in the New. How are we doing? Okay, that's all history. So Jesus calls us, tell me that's counting down. Yes, it's counting down. Okay, got plenty of time. Um, Jesus was a rabbi who made disciples and calls everyone who follows him to become a disciple. The goal of discipleship, there were three. And this is borrowed from our friend, John Mark Comer, who borrows it really from Dallas Willard and he, he paraphrases this so ex excellently. He says, there's three things that we need to do as disciples. We need to be with, learn to be with your rabbi, become like your rabbi, and do what your rabbi did. So if you were a disciple to a rabbi, your task was to be with him, which is why Akiva goes into the restroom, to become like your rabbi, that you will not only think like them, you will speak like them, you will dress like them, you will mimic their every move so that in doing the practices and following the teachings that your very character would, would exude 
the essence of that rabbi and that you would do what your rabbi did. And I, I love in our Christian context, we love being with Jesus because it's all about the practices. We love becoming like Jesus because it's all about the character traits we want to permeate. But most of us struggle with the doing the thing that Jesus called us to do, don't we? It's like we can create a self-project around be and become because it makes our lives better. It's tangible. But the idea of casting out demons and healing the sick, doing what Jesus did, oh, we'll save that for the experts or the crazy people. <laughs> but I just want to say that's what we're going after. Disciples of Jesus. The idea that you could be with your rabbi and maybe take on or, uh, some of the characteristics and not actually do what he did would mean you are not a disciple of your rabbi. Jesus has a goal for everyone that will say yes to following him. He gives us a parable in Luke chapter 6. Go there real quick. Luke chapter 6, verse 39. I told you we're going to jump around. All of you who brought your Bible, you're like, yes, I'm using it. Once a week, I, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Luke chapter six. I'm just going to see how long it takes me to get there. Judge you on how long it takes you to get there. And it's verse 39, I think. Yeah, this is a short parable. And I want you to think about this. What expectation does Jesus have of you as a follower? Here it is. In a parable, verse 39. He also told them this parable, can the blind lead the blind? They will not, uh, will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. There it is. This parable is about discipleship. And he's saying the blind lead the blind. He's referring to the Pharisees at the time who he regularly calls blind guides, that they will lead people towards destruction. And he says the student is not above the teacher. The word student is the word disciple. And the expectation is that you are fully trained to be like your teacher, your rabbi. The goal that Jesus has for you is that you become like him that you become like him. More on that in a second. I love what Dallas Willard says. And Dallas Willard, you'll hear, you're going to hear him quoted here a lot. So if you don't like it, just leave. Um, <laughs> just kidding. You can disagree with me and stay. It's totally fine. Just I'm going to ask you to leave. No, I'm just kidding. You can stay. Um, the greatest issue facing the world today in all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Really? This is the greatest issue facing the world today? How can someone so smart say something like that? That Dallas Willard, one of my heroes of the faith, Philosopher, philosophy professor at USC, written several books that are foundational in the theology of the kingdom of God today and spiritual disciplines, says actually the greatest issue facing the world are whether or not those who say they follow Jesus will be a disciple. What's he getting at? Okay, before, before we answer that question, if you're here and you're like, okay, I get it, Darren. I get it, okay. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to follow him like you're talking about. I want the dust of Jesus on me. Okay, what do I got to do? So I just want you to think about it. Do you want to follow him? Do you want to follow Jesus? I want you to decide for yourself if you will be a disciple. Because what I'm about to do is confront some things. So decide now or forever hold your peace. Or maybe after I'm done, I'll ask the question again. Let's do that, okay? That's probably what I wrote down earlier, but that, that got lost. Here we go. I want to I share with you two great obstacles that you face in being a disciple of Jesus today. You ready? Number one, your default, shape, your default setting is being shaped by culture because you are being discipled by culture. When you wake up every morning, you don't have a choice about it. You are swimming in the river of culture and it is influencing you 
and it is bending you in its image, it is forming you, shaping you, molding you into its own image. And the image that culture is producing is confused identity. It's uh, developing an ethic built on a plastic self that can be modified and changed without regard to design or intention. There are rules prescribed everywhere for this new kind of formation of our culture, but it's producing a fruit within the world that we can identify like the fruit of the spirit, except the fruit of the world is exhaustion and burnout, anxiety and depression, loneliness, anger, compulsive outrage, lack of compassion or empathy, a lack of self-control, escapist behavior is celebrated, addictions, and the inability to focus or pay attention and judging one another just to name the ones in my life. Mark Sayers puts it this way a little more eloquently. He says, our current Western context deforms our hearts and lives in profoundly destructive ways. Big business, big data, big porn's ability to reshape our inner worlds is unparalleled in human history. Therefore, the next great awakening, the next renewal, the coming revival must be centered on our hearts being changed by God. It must begin by replacing pseudo-Christianity of lifestyle enhancement with the spirit-filled faith of biblical Christianity. It must offer a renewal of Christ-likeness to those being deformed by our culture in the deepest parts of their hearts. He kind of names all the issues we face in Western context. Behind these, he'll, he'll say these powerful companies or behind the algorithms and AI that's shaping your inner world through technology. Uh, what Revelation reveals is, is there's an unveiling behind the curtain of these, these great power structures of government and, med, uh, and, and education and, and all these things we, we see. Behind it is Satan and the power of evil. So, I know it's hard to hear. You're like, oh yeah, let's ban Netflix. Yeah, there's truth to some of those issues, but behind the Netflix is there's an evil working in everything. We've done enough work here to know that we don't live in neutral context. Every context is, is either building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world, Satan's kingdom. And so the first obstacle you have is that you're already being a disciple of culture, which is influenced by Satan. So good morning. So glad you're here. <laughs> Welcome to church, family friendly. But there's a second problem that I would like to confront. It's the failure of the Western church's strategy. Think about this for a moment. The New Testament church strategy was to make disciple makers. The Western Christian church strategy is to build organizations with consumer Christians. Whew. Now, I can say this and I can deconstruct the issues, because I will always sit within the church that we light on fire in the pews as we watch it burn down so that we can rebuild or reconstruct around the biblical revelation of Christ and his strategy and method. So some of us are part of the deconstructionist movement where I talked about this on Easter. We have these issues of doubt and deconstruction, but we leave community and the actual community that we need to be a part of to bring our concerns to so that they can transform and be renewed. We just walk away with our little podcast and vanilla latte and forget about it. Sorry if you like vanilla lattes. Nothing against vanilla lattes. I should have said lavender latte. Honey, lavender, cardamom, I don't even know. But I did try one from, oh man, that is dessert in a bottle. It is heavenly and influenced by Satan itself. But anyways, let's go. <clears throat> I think, yeah, exactly. I think this is where we see the problem with the American church, a church that's made Jesus in the image of itself, a consumer-oriented, narcissistic, comfort, security-driven social club. I'm going to say this gently. <laughs> so we, we, our strategy is to build an organization where people can shop our spiritual goods. All right, should I keep going? Man, do you want Bill to come back and do some more theology? I love it. 
I'm going to just do this part real quick. So just bear with me because this is what I wanted to say and I tried to rewrite it. So I'm just going to do my best. So there's a difference between consumer Christianity and radical discipleship. And I just want you to know this. So the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament and the word disciple is used 268 times. In fact, one of the things that Mark does in his whole book is has this, this literary um, kind of uh, motif where it's like this regular rhythm, like here's what the disciples do, here's what the crowd does. Here's what the disciples do, here's what the crowd does. And he gets to the end, the, the crowd, Hosanna in the highest, put down the palm tree, blessed is the one who comes in the name of, yeah, the crowd saying that. And the very next few chapters, crucify him, crucify him. So the question at the end of the gospel of Mark is, will you be a disciple or part of the crowd? Will you be a disciple or a consumer Christian? You see, radical disciples, here's some traits I was just trying to process. What, what are some of the traits in our church we want to produce? What's the vision for if you come here for three years and you participate in the life of the church, you come on Sundays, you serve, you give your time and energy, you join a house church or a missional community, you go to our trainings, what's going to happen? I want to say this. Well, number one, a radical disciple lives the word of God and allows the scripture to be authoritative and directing in every affair in their life. The scriptures direct, the word of life, the word of God becomes a way of managing their life. They, they, they rely on the word. Number two, they live the way of Jesus and choose to make other disciples. They don't choose to live any other way. They follow the way of Jesus, not just the truths of Jesus, but the way of Jesus. How we do in church? Number three, if you're taking notes, is they live empowered by the spirit. It is the spirit of God that permeates a radical disciple. How do I know this? Well, look at Peter, case in point. Peter, the apostle, right? One minute, oh, you are the Messiah. Next minute, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Struggling. At the very end of, of Jesus' life and ministry before he's crucified, he denies knowing him three times. He calls down curses from heaven saying, I never knew this guy. Rooster crows three times. He's convicted because Jesus prophesied that that would happen. And he goes off into hiding. And then Jesus raises from the dead. And there's 40 days where Jesus is resurrected and Peter's with him. And then it says in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. And in a moment where there's, the Spirit is moving with power, in those 50 days between he denied Jesus and now he's, uh, the Spirit has come down, within those 50 days, G, uh, Peter goes from sitting to warm himself up by the fire, denying the resurrected Christ, to standing up in front of the crowd and saying, you killed the author of life and pro proclaims the resurrected Christ. He will stand before the Sanhedrin court and say, who should I believe? And they will say they took note he had been with Jesus. What was it? Was it practices? Was it changing a mindset? Some of that had to go, absolutely, those are true. Or was it the, the reality that the spirit of God transformed his being because he became a vessel for the presence of God? Real disciples will live empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's no discipleship of transformation without the presence of God in your life. That's just point number three. This is all side notes. Number four, real disciples will live in covenantal countercultural community in local contexts. Let me say this. Real disciples live in community where they are known, where their weaknesses are exposed, where their sin life is confessed. They don't just leave for jobs. They question whether or not with their people it's for them because they have covenanted to a group of people. Number five, they live for God's purposes in the world on mission. Number six, they live generous and compassionate lives towards everyone. Let me give you the markers of a consumer Christian. You ask yourself, where do I fit? I feel like it got real quiet. <laughs> I promise you, I'm not, I'm not angry if you think I'm angry. I'm just real passionate right now. I long I long for you to know Jesus this way. And what I know is that there are so many obstacles you face to really experiencing him. It's because you've been, you've been, we've been formed and taught all these other things. All right, number one, consumer Christians live with their personal experience as the highest authority in decision-making. And their desires direct the affairs of their life, not the word. 
They live the way of the world and culture, and they consume spiritual goods so that their lives are better, not the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. They live empowered by their desires to consume rather than the spirit of God who consumes. They live shallow lives with community based on interests and what they can get out of connection with people. If they're a part of a church, they attend irregularly on the basis of convenience of their schedule. They don't have commitment or accountability with anyone. And when there's disagreement, they don't resolve conflict. They just leave to the next. Rather than living for God's purposes in the world, they live for their dreams and their desires. Rather than living generous and compassionate, they live selfishly. And if they give, it's irregularly with control. Those are the, the things that I came up with, six, six markers of the consumer Christian versus radical discipleship. You see, the disciples of the New Testament, they were obsessed with Jesus. It wasn't like Jesus and my marriage and my kids and my hobbies and my job. It was Jesus and everything else. Now, I don't want to diminish the role of marriage and family. That's not what I'm saying. But their lives were changed. They were transformed. They weren't going to a new location because it was cool or convenient. They were dying for what they believed was reality. Jesus changed how they lived, how they did marriage, how they did parenting, how they used their resources, how they handled finances, their schedule, their time. It, 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 Jesus changed the way they saw the future therefore impacted their present. And I just want to say, Garden Church, that's what we're going after. We're talking about courageous orthodoxy. When I say discipleship, I mean obsession with Jesus. I'm not trying to give you a philosophy that will help you manage your chaotic life. I'm trying to get you to die to yourself. I want you to be a disciple of Jesus, not because it makes our church look cool or sexy, but because it has radical implications for the rest of the world. If you really get it, you will become fully alive. And if you become fully alive, you are an agent of transformation in the world. So how do you become a disciple then? Well, if you've been here, we've talked through this. We've spent series. There's so many. We have an entire website built out for you to be a disciple of Jesus, gardenchurch.life. It's just, I don't know if that's it. It's on our website. There's all these practices, all these things, rules of life, trainings and teachings and all these things. And I've been thinking about this. We have a philosophy of discipleship where you can go and get resources, where we talk about changing toxic thinking and taking on biblical narratives and releasing unintentional habits and taking on spiritual disciplines and changing your relationships with, to biblical community, all of this in the power of the Holy Spirit over a long period of time. But I was pressed this morning. I think we've allowed discipleship in our current moment to become very complex and overbearing. And I look at that passage in Mark chapter three where it says, Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him and do the Jesus stuff. We spend all this time reading about discipleship, about God, fasting and podcasts, and we do all these things, but discipleship is less about practices and more like marriage. Like, I, 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 I've been thinking about this, like what really transforms people? And, and, and hear me, I'm going to use this illustration on marriage, but if you're single, it's the same thing. Let me talk about this because singleness, the goal isn't marriage, right? In singleness. The goal is to be fully alive in your singleness. singleness. And people who have chosen to live celibate lifestyles where they don't, they don't marry somebody, right? They, they, they often, when I've talked to celibates, they, they often talk about their life of passion and intimacy as someone who's married Jesus, whether male or female, that there's something about this, this dedication of life and passions and everything in it to Jesus. And marriage, Paul uses as a metaphor. He says, when I talk about marriage, I have to talk about the gospel because it's that intimate and intense. And when we talk about discipleship, we want to give you these formulas to make it really convenient, like read five minutes of the Bible. Are you kidding me? Pray for five minutes a day. Make it really convenient. Here's a strategy. Read a chapter. We're talking about 
The very essence of your existence is due to this God who loves you. And we make discipleship A, B, C, D, follow these three steps rather than, hey, step up to the altar and say, I do. Now, if we judged a marriage on the lists, on the chores that you accomplish as a couple, on the number of date nights you have a month, or how great your sex life is throughout the years. Marriage is not your sex life. All you single people who are trying to be married, I just need you to know that now. It's part of it. It's not built on your date nights. That doesn't necessarily represent anything. It's about intimacy. It's about becoming one in this mysterious, divine, God-given institution mandate that we become one with a person who's different than us in so many ways. And, and in that difference, that oneness reflects the very image of God into the world. And it requires, it's, it's about intimacy building. It's about a sanctification becoming. This, this person holds up a mirror and exposes all sorts of brokenness, yet they say, I'm not going to leave you. Marriage is a great metaphor what, what discipleship looked like in the first century. We can't reduce it to a self-project where we make it really complex with following these things. We have to see it as union or intimacy. I guess this is the, the real thing I wanted to end on. I was reading in Matthew 25 this last week. There's this parable in verse 1. It says this. I'm just going to read it. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins who were ready went in with, to, uh, went in with him to the wedding banquet and the doors were shut. Later, the others came and said, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. I was reading this and I was like, what does this have to do with discipleship? And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, it's about intimacy. So much of discipleship is about knowledge and information. But I want you to learn to be with me. I want you to learn intimacy. And in this, in this context, I felt like the Lord was saying, this is my inspiration. I'm not, I'm not teaching this exegetically, okay? I'm teaching this from my perspective. I feel like the Lord's saying that, that the oil is the oil of intimacy. And that we, as followers of Jesus, need to become passionate lovers of Jesus who, who don't rely on the historical intimacy of our past, but keep current intimacy with Jesus today. Oh, I was a good husband seven years ago before we had, or 10 years ago before we had kids, babe. That's enough, right? No. It's about being intimate in the moment. And I, I just feel like the word I have for many of us today is we've made discipleship the wrong thing. And this is about being wooed into loving relationship with God. I know that's hard for us to understand because we're so used to consuming spiritual goods. Let me give you A, B, C, D on your discipleship. But what I want you to do is fall in love with Jesus and be wooed into transformation so that 50 years from now, you look more like Jesus. You talk more like Jesus so that when the worst thing that happens to you, what oozes out of you is the things that would ooze out of Jesus. Who, by the way, on the cross, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when the worst thing that could ever happen to a human happens to that human Jesus, his oozing, that's a word, is Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. 
who's going to look after my mom? Jesus didn't do that just because he was the divine son of God. He did that because he was formed into that image through his life, lifestyle, through his communion with the Father. We can do and say and be the things that Jesus would do and say and be if he were us today, not just from replacing habits or learning good teaching or showing up to community, but because we've been with Jesus, intimate lovers, passionate followers. Discipleship is about intimacy. It's about union. I love one of my favorite quotes, actually. It was in a Bill class, Pastor Bill. I was 19 years old. And Bill taught a spiritual disciplines class. And one of the books we read in the preface as we read it was the story. And I never understood it up until a couple years ago. So forgive me for, I was a slow learner. That's why I brought Bill along to plan our church. <laughs> it's from uh, the Desert Fathers. And it's Ab- Abba Lot. Listen, I'm going to put it up there. Abba Lot went to Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can say in my little office, I fast a little. I pray and meditate. I live in peace as far as I can. I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched out his hands towards heaven, and his fingers became like ten lamps of fire. And he said to him, If you will, you can become all aflame. So much of our life in Jesus is us keeping our little fast, reading our little book, praying our little prayer, confessing our little thoughts. And we think that that's the point, but that's not the point. The point is to be transformed into fire. So when I talk about discipleship, I'm inviting you to be set ablaze. To be set ablaze, not for your business, not for your parenting, not for your family, not because you're struggling with addiction, because when you get set ablaze in Jesus, everything else will work itself out. So the call today is to get married. <laughs> to say I do. And answer the question again, I guess I had at the beginning, and I, I'll leave it for you at the end. Will you be part of the crowd? Or I'll say, will you be a consumer Christian here? Or will you be a disciple of Jesus? He will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, or I never knew you. Let's pray. (laughs) Can we all stand up? Thank you for listening. We are Garden Church. To find out more about our community and to find resources to help you in your spiritual journey, visit garden.church. Well